0: just a reminder the Friday email did go out Friday if you did not get it that means you're not on my women's email list and um, so if you want to get those emails um, it has our lecture a video or an audio so you can listen to it like a podcast it has blogs it's just a way to keep up like when we sign up for the women's retreat and stuff like that Uh, it's just another way to get connected of course you can find out other ways too, but it's just easy for me if somebody send me an email. So um, I just wanted to say that. Um, thank you for coming back after last week. That's always fun as a teacher to see. Some I'm not by myself this week. Um, even when it was rainy, and even though it was a crazy day for a lot of us, um, and and it is so hard. Just like I said last week, I, who teaches the Beatitudes in 35 minutes? Who does that? Nobody. Um, but we're going to scratch the surface again like last week lots of other things are written that have so much information. What I really want us to do is just kind of walk away with this idea of what the Beatitudes are and uh, maybe correct some things that really a lot of our cultural Christianity or just culture has taken the Beatitudes and maybe twisted it not to what Jesus meant. So if things sound odd to you, come ask your small group leader, come ask me. If you want more information, if you just wanna talk it out, like some of this doesn't make sense. You are in good company because I think that sometimes too. Um, and um, gravity doesn't make sense, but yet here we are. So, you know, sometimes we're just not gonna understand everything. So. So what I want to do is I'm not going to read the passage yet. At the um, the last point, um, we're going to read a a version of it together in just a little bit. But I just want you to know that we're talking about the Beatitudes in Matthew um, five verses three through how many verses eleven or twelve. So the first thing I want to talk about is I want to define the word blessed. Or blessed then we're gonna talk about what does the Beatitudes mean just as a group and then we're going to talk about and I have a chart for y'all if you're a note-taker you are gonna just love me today because that is a place to kind of pop in some words I might say if you're not a note-taker it's just a chart you don't have to do anything with it it was a way I was organizing my thoughts because there is a connection between the promise and the characteristic but there's also uh, a counterfeit that the world says to us, you can get that by doing something else. And I want us to just kind of look at that contrast as women in Fort Worth today. So that's kind of where we're going with the lecture. So first of all, what does blessed mean? Um, like I said last week, blessed is a hard English word for what is meant. It, uh, sometimes it might be translated happy. And Sure, like happy could be part of it, but it's something more than that and last week we said it's more like the word flourished or flourishing or This is the way if you want your life to work if you want to live out the way Jesus says his kingdom works This is what it looks like. This is what a healthy person looks like. This is what a Christian looks like This is what someone who, uh, what someone who believes in Jesus and who's a member of the kingdom of God looks like so it's almost like a, an observation more than a feeling it's um, it's kind of like a status um, because you'll see one of the Beatitudes is blessed are those who mourn well if I'm blessed why am I crying because in our culture even in the church Happiness comes to those who are doing well. If you have it all together, you're happy. How can someone be sad and blessed? How can they be flourishing and crying? So that should pique our interest. But, but just to continue with mourning and that beatitude, mourning over your sin actually produces flourishing. Just like pruning actually produces a healthier plant, right? If you want your rosebush to flourish, you prune it. And this is how God views their status. It's the characteristic and the blessing for all believers. This isn't just for those super-Christians. This isn't for the nuns and monks to do, and us normal people get to do the halfway Beatitudes. This is not just for the preachers this is not just for the elders and deacons it's not like for the elite people who are super dry this is for all believers you know god gives believers different gifts but he gives all believers all the fruit of the spirit and all of these characteristics and all of the blessings listed in the beatitudes now this blessedness or flourishing comes through faithfulness to god which includes obedience we talked about that last week there's an inner happiness and satisfaction um a contentment paul describes this in philippians i have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry whether living in plenty or in want the the attitude the blessedness the flourishing is not determined by by circumstances the first part of a beatitude like the first phrase is a quality or an action those are our responsibilities the next part of the beatitude is a blessing which is our privilege john stott said that and you might go well when do i get all this blessed stuff when do i flourish is it only after jesus comes back and i'm in heaven there is some blessedness, some flourishing that happens now, and it's going to be a, a shadow, a hint, a little a whisper of the loud flourishing that you will have when Jesus comes back. So both, some now, a lot later. So you might go, well, do I have to do something to be blessed? This is not an earned blessing. Remember, we said this last week too. It's more of an observable connection. Okay? And there is no entrance requirement for the kingdom of God. But these things describe the person who is in the kingdom of God. Okay? I do not expect my Nandina Bush to have oranges, right? But if I go and there's a tree with oranges on it, what do I assume? It's an orange tree. Now, it was an orange tree before the oranges got there, right? But that's how I know what it is. The Puritan said, the law sends us to Christ to be saved, and Christ sends us to the law to be sanctified, okay? You're going to read the Beatitudes just like you read the law and go, oh, no, I don't do this. Meek, have you seen me this morning? Um, I was real sassy on the way out of the house. Um, uh, I don't want to be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. I will not rejoice. I'm not that person. And we're going to read these just like you would read the Ten Commandments and go, I'm in trouble. And the law, the Beatitudes, reminds you, go to Christ. Go to Christ. And then Christ hugs you and says, okay, this is what it's going to look like to live. You can do this through me. And he sends this to the Beatitudes and says, this is what my life looks like. This is what your life will look like. Okay? To everybody who believes. So, next point. Let's get into it. Let's talk about the Beatitudes, this kind of like almost like a cross stitch section of the Sermon on the Mount, okay? Um, This cast a vision as a group, okay? You can't just have pick. I like one, three, and five. It's like the tacos at Velvet Taco. I'll take a number 11 and guac. You know, no, no, it's a whole thing, okay? And also, each beatitude is like a ring. Um, I read a great article that said, And, of course, I'm not an athlete, so I may screw this up. Um, That in, like, a gym, they have those rings where you go from one ring to the next. Well, you don't start on one and then jump over to ring five. You you have to go through the procession, the normal progression of rings to get to the next one. So each beatitude kind of takes you the next step, takes you to the next ring, okay? So what you have to look at it kind of like that, like a group. But what this casts a vision for is God-centered flourishing. What does a citizen look like and what does a citizen act like in this kingdom? And it's an invitation to join it. Um, This is how the kingdom of God works. Again, some of this might be repetitive from last week. Pennington says that this is black gold. Um, In your handout, I put the Valley of Vision that so summarizes, and and if you read it, you can kind of hear hints of the Beatitudes in there, that you must go down to go up, okay? That is so opposite of how our world says to go up. To go up, guess what? You climb that ladder. You push people off the ladder. It's you to the top of the ladder no matter what. And Jesus is saying actually I offer you a different path to go into the top of the ladder and it's actually to fall off the ladder and we can't understand it so we're gonna have to reorient how we look at blessing and suffering and that is no fun in this economy shalom or peace or happiness blessedness flourishing Whatever word you want to use, correlates. It, it directly corresponds to suffering. That is so topsy-turvy. And God's kingdom, like I said, does not work like the normal kingdom. Do you remember when Alice fell into the, the hole? She went down chasing the rabbit, and she ended up in a topsy-turvy world? That's kind of like the world is the topsy-turvy world. And reality is God's kingdom. And so God's kingdom is not going to work like Alice in Wonderland kingdom. The beatitudes are so countercultural, so opposite. They say pursue money and career. The world says health and beauty, friends and social standing, brains and strength, and actually a little bit of pushiness is what you need to flourish in your life. But there's an observation that the Beatitudes makes about the citizen of God's kingdom and how she matures. So first, four Beatitudes show characteristics of a Christian. Poor in spirit, sorrow over sin, meekness, and actually she craves righteousness. Now the last four Beatitudes show how then that citizen, that believer reacts to circumstances or to people around them. They're merciful. They're pure in heart. They're peacemaking. They actually may be persecuted, yet rejoice. So, um, on on your uh, handout, I also have a quote by Eugene Peterson. Scripture does not present us with a moral code and tell us live up to this, nor does it set out a system of doctrine and say, think like this and you will live well. Rather, the biblical way is to tell a story, and in the telling invite, live into this. This is what it looks like to be human in the God-made and God-ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being. Okay, Jesus, who created everything, is saying, if you want to know which end is up, this is it. And you may feel like Alice in Wonderland, going... I feel like I, 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 this is so different from me. I need to reorient myself. How can suffering, how can persecution, how can being sad actually lead to me being happy and blessed and content? So let's get that chart out. We're going to look at these connections and the counterfeits. Um, and here's where I want to use the word Flourish instead of the word blessed in uh, the translation, okay? So that's why flourish is in red, because that is not the Bible. So do not turn me into the Bible, please. I am telling you, this is just a way for us to get that idea of what is closer to the actual translation of blessed in our heads. Um, Verse 2. And he opened his mouth, Jesus, and taught them, saying, Flourishing are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Flourishing are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Flourishing are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Flourishing are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Flourishing are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Flourishing are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Flourishing are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Flourishing are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you okay so what we're going to do is just run down this list this is where like you can read a chapter on each box okay one thing i think is interesting that i just want to point out and all the commentators i read a lot of them and i'm not saying this is bad and i don't know the context for why they did this but there was a lot of ink on the part that the believer is or does But less ink on the promise and I thought that was interesting and so what I want us to do is also just as much as we're gonna probably have the tendency to say okay I need to be meek I need to be meek I need to be meek I want us to just as much go I'm gonna be inheriting the earth and thinking about the promise okay because that's the gift okay Um, when I'm having a baby Sure, I am focused on the Lamaze breathing. Sure, I know what's coming. Sure, I am in the moment and doing the pain. But what I'm fixing my eyes on is the baby, the promise. So I think it's helpful for us to remind ourselves, not just of what, oh my goodness, now I've got to be humble or poor in spirit. Yes, you do. But why? So you'll be in the kingdom of heaven. That far outweighs anything that is a cost to us. So I just want to say that as we think about all these things, okay? Okay, poor in spirit. First of all, this does not have to do with your bank account. It does not have to do with how much your shoes cost this morning. It does not have to do with the car that's parked outside. This is talking about a spiritual poverty, an empty-handedness when we go to God. Remember, Jesus said, you have to have faith like a little child. How rich is a child? How much stuff can a child carry? How much does a child own outright? In the hymn Rock of Ages, it says, Nothing in my hand I bring. Why? Because how are you gonna grab that cross (laughs) if you're full of stuff, if you're full of your good works, if you're full of your who your mama is and who your daddy was? But simply to thy cross I cling. If you cling to something, you are not trying to hold groceries in your arms. You drop those groceries and you cling. Luke four eighteen says, Jesus came to what? Set the prisoners free. How rich are prisoners? Do they have a way out of prison? They are empty. They are helpless. They are stuck. If they could get out, they would have already. And Jesus says, I've got the key. I come to rescue you. Psalm 34:6. 6, the poor man called and was saved. Rich men don't really call out for help, do they? Again, poverty of spirit, though. So a rich man financially can be very poor in spirit. Because they see their money cannot do anything for their soul. The money can only be spent here and now. What happens when he dies? Jesus came for the sick, he said, not the rich or the healthy. I don't go to the doctor when I feel great. I go to the doctor when I need help and I can't fix it. Revelation 3, Revelation three seventeen says, and, and uh, John is, ta- uh, God is talking to this church, I think at Laodicea, and he says, you say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Okay, that could be said for our Fort Worth churches. people would look at our churches and say you're self-reliant people you've got great jobs you can handle the problems life is throwing you and you say i've done I've, i've worked hard i've acquired wealth i don't need a thing and jesus looks at you and says oh what i see is somebody that's blind and naked and poor and pitiful and wretched that's how jesus sees our souls the, we don't see them that way. This poor in spirit looks like confession. It looks like you going, I've got nothing but confessing to do here. I can bring you my <coughs> dirt. I can bring you my need. I can bring you nothing, nothing. I have nothing to help pay for this problem. And So what's the promise If we go to Jesus in this emptiness, in this poverty of spirit, what is the guarantee? That those empty arms will be filled with the riches that come with citizenship of the kingdom of God. It's a total 180. That now they are part of this family, part of this kingdom, part of this country where Jesus rules it. And guess what? They are on the eternal track of constantly being on the winning side of things they're part of a kingdom that won't fail they're watched over by a strong omniscient king who is like a mama bear when somebody chases after his citizens and this king is seated at the right hand of God praying for you right now that's the promise so let me get this straight I have nothing and I contribute nothing and I walk away with eternal riches. That I can be continually forever happy, blessed, flourish. That's the trade. That's too good to be true is what we would say, right? And Jesus say, no, this is, this is typical for my kingdom. <laughs> you come empty, you stay full. But what does the world offer in order to get to that kind of stability? The only way to get to a promise that offers riches um well the church the church sometimes this is not the right way a church should do it sometimes we say you just have to be good you've got to come to church at least three out of four weeks a month you have to do this bible study you have to well you can't say that word anymore um you have to be self-sufficient you have to be dressed okay you need to at least be working hard to earn a living and you need to be you know be feel like you've done a good enough job to show up and no one's gonna catch you in anything bad to embarrass you on the internet um and you know god's gonna be kind of honored to have you in heaven because you were a good person on this earth i mean i took chicken casseroles to people I I like taught Sunday school. I was I was taking up the offering just with the best of the deacons. I went to all those meetings. As a matter of fact, I was never late. And you know what Matthew 7 says to that Jesus will say to those people, I never knew you. I don't recognize you. I'm sorry. Are you sure? Because they are not of the kingdom of God. That's the counterfeit way to that promise. You won't get the promise. You think you're getting it, and you realize when it's too late, it was counterfeit. It was monopoly money, and you just you can't spend it. The second beatitude is connected. So if you're poor in spirit, if you're empty, of, and you have nothing to bring except your sin, what would follow to be the next thing? You are sad. You mourn your sin. Now... Scripture totally promises God will comfort those who are sad for so many reasons. You're sick, you've lost your home, you've lost a loved one. There's so many reasons to be sad in our world, and Jesus is a compassionate Savior, okay? This verse, though, about this kind of sadness is particular. It's really about the sadness you have over sin, Okay, he he wants to comfort the sinner. So, this is probably the most radical beatitude that I think our culture could study because we don't even like calling something a sin, much less crying over it, much less confessing it. And if we have confessed our sin as being poor of spirit, Here's where we're contrite and we feel the reality of I sin. I don't live the Beatitudes out. I'm not meek. I'm actually kind of a jerk sometimes. I gossip. I cheat on my husband. I cheat on my friends. I I just, I want worldly things. Sue me. I'm not a good believer. And we mourn these things instead of stuffing them. Instead of saying, well, I'm better than my sister. Look at what she's doing. I'm better than that next door neighbor. Look at the way her kids act. And instead of mourning our sin, we squirrel it away and stuff it behind us where it drags like 50 pound weights the rest of our lives. Psalm 119 verse 136 says, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Hey, I'll tell you why I cry. Because somebody made me mad and got in my way. <laughs> That's why I shed streams of tears. This psalmist is saying, I cry because society is sinning. Because my church is not following God's law. Because my family is broken because of sin. Ezekiel 9.4 is, is like an image of God judging His people, okay, God says pass through the city through Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. Here we see God noticing the people who are upset over sins, even within the church. And then we also see even Jesus weep over sin, over when Jerusalem wouldn't come to him, when he was offering his, the salvation they had been thinking about for decades and centuries. He cries because he wants to hold them. It's like when your own children won't be comforted by you, won't come to you. And they're just mad, and they're just, they're they're rebellious. And we cry, and Jesus cries for the same reason. But Jesus in the promise is also the comforter. That when you mourn over sin, whether it's yours or America's or the world's, Jesus gives you the only kind of blankie that makes you feel better. Himself. I don't know about you, but sometimes when things are going really, really poorly, um, I think about Okay, yes, that is no fun. I am suffering. But what if Jesus had not come? What if What if Jesus had not died for me? And I think about the load of sin that I would have to deal with on my own. And then when I take that and turn to Christ and say, but you took that from me. That comfort, there's no other high like it. There's that there's that relief of just, I'm okay. <clears throat> yes, my life, my children's lives, my husband, my business, my, my, my extended family, my workplace, it may not recover. But the ultimate way that I need comfort is mine. In Luke 2.25, when Simeon sees the baby Jesus at the temple, Luke says he saw the consolation of Israel. He was the one who can console all the mess. Here was this devout man waiting, and waiting, and that was what it looked like, was his baby Jesus. God's free forgiveness is the only thing that can wipe away these kind of tears. There's a wonderful hymn, and it ties together, poor in spirit and mourning, together. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. He's your comforter. How's the world offered comfort? This is how if I say I'm confessing my sin over coffee to my my best friend or whatever, it's like, yeah. I lost my temper with the kids. Yeah, you know, I called Harry a jackass today. Yeah. Um, And this is the response of a lot of women. Oh, that's nothing. Listen to what I did. Or, that's okay. They know you love them. Or, it could be, you had no sleep last night. That is why. You should not feel bad about that at all. They deserve that. What are the quick fixes to feeling comforted? Denying the sin is definitely one of them. Compare yourself to others. My sin's not as bad as their sin, definitely works. Why don't you just, that's one of the reasons we love to hang out with people who are doing poorly. (laughs) Um, But there are other quick fixes to comfort. Nothing like a good old credit card to make you feel better. Um, For me, it's planning things, having a goal, Something get my mind off of what's making me uncomfortable. That could be cleaning. It could be exercising. It could be drinking. It could be keeping busy. It could be anything but deal with the sin. And as you know, if you've got a splinter, it's going to not come out unless you get it out. And Jesus is the one with the tweezers. Or maybe to be comforted, to deal with your sin, you do more good things. You up your church involvement. You take more chicken casseroles. You memorize scripture. I don't know, you clean out your closet, whatever it is to deal with the sin. And again, it will not comfort you. It will not comfort you. I'm pretty convicted that I just do not mourn my sin I certainly don't mourn sin around me very well. But when I do, and when Jesus takes me there, and he has taken me there, and and this is what it can look like, y'all, especially for women. I'll give you uh, one example. I've shared this before, and there's nobody here, and you do not know her, and it was my fault. So if she ever figures this out by listening to this podcast, which is a one in a million chance, it's all my fault. This is so, this is such a girl sin. Oh, this, this woman at my church got on my last nerve. Everybody loved her. She was very popular. She had had a lot of hard things in her life. She kept on saying these things. This is so funny that this would make me mad. She was not from Mississippi, and she kept on talking bad about Mississippi. <laughs> and like, well, you know the teachers don't get paid enough here, and blah, 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 and you have a race problem, and blah, 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 and I'm, you know, born and bred in Mississippi, and I get it, and you know, it's like, I can talk about my family, but you cannot, okay? So, I I would just, I could tell it was bubbling. It was festering. The splinter was there. I didn't, I just, I was just mad at her, and, but I couldn't act like it, Because one, my mama taught me better than that. Two, everybody liked her. I would be on the out socially if I said anything stinky about it. And instead of being, if it bothered me that much, I should have talked to her about it like Jesus says to do confrontation. But no, I was embarrassed of my sin. I was embarrassed that this was a problem. And it got to be where it started. It was right here, y'all. It was right here. I was about to lose it. I don't know if you ever ever been there where your sin is like God talking to Cain it's crouching at your door now that can be anything from an affair to overspending to losing your temper to giving your husband a cold shoulder to talking bad about your friend which I was about to do remember I was probably gonna do it in front of 20 people and totally embarrass myself um, and hurt her feelings And dishonor God. And I came to a point, and this was Jesus being so kind. He said, you've got a splinter, and you can't get it out. And you're going to have to sit still for a second while I do. And I needed to get to the point where all my tools for being good were running out of usefulness that is a mercy for us ladies when you get to the wall and go i can't climb it anymore i've done all the things i know to do i've been charming i've avoided i've done all the things i know i think i need jesus to kill this sin and i took it to him and i mourned it and it was so freeing because he came with the only comfort that would help. He says, I forgive you. I have power over this sin. And the power over me dissipated. It dissipated. It poof. It (coughs) killed it. Now, it may not work like that every time. There may be a struggle sin that you're constantly, God's having to come in and whack it on the head until you get to the new heavens and new earth. But there's nothing like the comfort That only Jesus can give when it's your sin. You cannot flourish with sin in control. Take comfort instead. Okay, moving right along. When you live through mourning and your poverty of spirit, (laughs) you end up meek, y'all. You just do. That's just what comes next. You're gentle. You're humble. You're considerate. You're even courageous because it's not your power. you got God behind you. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this is the attitude that we have due to our true estimate of ourselves. Bottom line, we have seen now how this world is. God is good and I'm bad and he invites me to be good. And everything I've got because I'm a citizen of this kingdom has been given to me. I did not earn it and I'm so relieved this is my world and this is my future. And this is my present and we get our place in the universe which is not the (laughs) sinner i am not the queen thee, but i am a a queen in the kingdom of god so again this is a test to see if you're meek god may call you a sinner you may call yourself a sinner but if someone gets upset and tells you you're a sinner and you get mad at them that is the clue you're not meek okay so what happens what's the promise for meek believers they are going to inherit the earth it's the best real estate investment you can make this is a real possession that cannot be lost because your husband didn't pay the mortgage it can't be lost because somebody else took it your king and by the way the Kings your father owns it and it's your inheritance Psalm 37 Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, for those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Y'all, throughout history, believers have been taken advantage of. Jesus did not own Doghouse on this earth. And yet he owns everything. God says, all of this stuff, yes, right now it looks like it's all going to the powerful people. But Psalm, the psalmist says, look for that powerful person in the last day, and you won't be able to find his shadow. You won't even see his footprint. He'll go, Where did he go? He's gone, disappeared what lasts is the earth you are getting and inheriting it so what's that look like now look at that tree and say a better version of that tree is gonna be in my yard one day it is as sure as we're sitting here the new heavens and new earth are coming you are gonna own some of that so how is the world say to get land it's never in a meek way right Today you've got to be confident and pushy. You have to think ahead. You have to be super smart. And everything from cheerleader trouts to landing the promotion, we women look at look. We look meek and we're killers. Cause we have better. And really, our children need to inherit the earth. They need to have what I didn't have. They need to own what I couldn't afford. They need to have the accolades. They need to have the scholarships. They need to have the things that either I did have or wish I'd had. And Jesus is looking at you like, how about inheriting the new heavens and new earth? You start applying the beatitudes and wishing this for your children, that's going to be countercultural for our culture of mothers in the room, at least. Okay, so then we get to this part. Okay, this is where all the characteristics, and then you get to this kind of, Pivot beatitude of those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Okay? This is something that only God can give to. They shall be filled. So what's the appetite for? Being good, good, like having it easy? Uh knowing your Bible the best? It's for righteousness. It's for wholeness. And that's a this a kind of um ambition is actually your holiness and this is spiritual okay legally speaking you are right with God you and God in that relationship are good morally you're righteous and that your inner heart is doing what your outside body is doing and that pleases God you are obeying God your moral righteousness is happening and also you want this righteousness for your community okay that's what this appetite for righteousness looks like and what is the promise they will be filled again jesus is the only person who can give us righteousness he gives us his righteousness look at the woman at the well in john 4 he is the water that does not run out this was her only option for true thirst quenching she had tried all these relationships with men in her life i love that this woman is in the bible because women a lot of times go to relationships to quench whatever they're craving acceptance importance being valued being adored being loved being safe and god jesus says i am the one that can quench that not the good i can give you good things not the things that those men give you. So how does the world want to fill you up? First of all, they do not have an appetite for righteousness anyway. But what's their ambition? What's their definition of righteousness? And is it a heart righteousness? Or are we like the, well, the woman with the well dipping their cups into fake cisterns that really are just a bunch of chemicals that look like water? Wells of achievement, of comfort, of self-perfection. Moving along to merciful. Now we're really gonna see how we relate to other people. It's different than grace. Grace deals with the problem of sin. Mercy deals with the effects of sin. The pain and the consequences. Someone's hungry. Someone is lonely. Somebody doesn't have enough money to pay their electric bill. Somebody's getting left out of the birthday party. And just like you used to see those uh, stories about people paying it forward, like somebody would pay for the groceries behind them, and the, you know, the idea is now you pay it forward to the guy in the Starbucks line, you know that kind of thing. This is what's interesting. To be merciful, you have to have been given mercy. And if you have been given mercy in this kingdom of God, guess what, you will be merciful. You can't help it. Your heart, that new heart we talked about last week, Beats to this drum You are going to pass along What Jesus has given you Not only now But in the great judgment day You will be shown mercy Because Jesus will look at you And say oh I know you I know you I've given you mercy then And I will, I will give you the biggest mercy now Come into my kingdom Mercy is a fading quality In this culture um, to get mercy in this day and age, you kind of got to deserve it, right? You've got to be really hardworking to get that hand out. You've got to really just, you know, have a lot of pain. You, you should, you know, it can't be your fault. I'm not sure the world can even show mercy because so much of what the world offers is mercy is to really make themselves look good. It's really not about you. Or they are going to be strings attached. I'm going to show you mercy, and I know you're going to show me mercy next. God's mercy is free, and our mercy to others should be too. Okay, um, pure in heart. Psalm 51, verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. This means you have inward purity. It's not hypocritical. Your outside matches your inside. And we're going to see this so much in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to see a lot of these Beatitudes be like, here's what it looks like in real life. And we're going to see this one particularly when God's talking about, the Pharisees said don't murder. But I'm telling you, when you hate somebody in your heart, you've broken that law. You've murdered. What's the promise? You get to see God. Y'all, I would love to see, who? I would love to see uh, Joanna Gaines i would love to see uh know who else is famous i want to see oh i'd love to see uh who whoever's up for an oscar i'd love to see uh uh, i mean i don't even want to name a political person right now uh uh, i want to get to see you know i don't know just your hero i want to see somebody famous i i'm always like if you go to new york or somewhere you're like oh am i gonna see somebody famous you just want to see i don't know what it is with our fascination we want to see somebody okay We're talking God, okay? If you look back at the Old Testament, that's what Moses wanted. Can I just see you? Can I just get a glimpse of you? You know what would happen if God answered that prayer? You'd die. You would die. Because we are sinners and God is holy, but if we're pure in heart, if we're completely whole and righteous, we will get to see God because we will be pure like he is. Okay, obviously, we're not going to see God until we see him in the new heavens and new earth. But you do get glimpses of God that the world cannot see. When you look at nature, you pick up on the creator. When you see the way God answers your prayers in Providence. When I am crying out to God in my house, and I get a text message from a friend that says, I don't know why, but I'm praying for you. Guess what I see? God, and we feel his warmth, and we get the countenance of his love on us when we're reading the scripture, and something clicks, or something melts our heart, or something convicts us of sin, and we get that comfort, we see him in scripture. We see, we see God like little bits of it, almost like a blindfold man feels an elephant. But God is so big and so pure. But one day we will see him face to face because we will be as Jesus was. Do you know how the world sees God? One They don't. Two, they put him in their image. They put God into something they can look at and it makes them feel better. And it makes them feel justified and it makes them proud and it makes them look down on other people's fake gods. That's how the world sees God and they don't see the true God. One day they will see God as judge and it will, be, it will be so horrible. Okay, starting to wind it up, peacemakers. We are in the community and in a church to pursue peace. Why? Because that's what our Father did. Jesus is Prince of Peace. What I found confusion, confusing is why does persecution come right after peacemaking? Doesn't everybody love a peacemaker? And we all know, no we don't, because they get on our nerves, or they make it to where we don't get what we want or they, uh, they just make us seem not perfect. I don't know. Jesus was a peacemaker. They killed him. The prophets brought words of peace, how to have peace. They were killed. The disciples, off with their heads. We should not be surprised that persecution follows peacemaking. But this is the deal with peacemaking. You get, the, you get to be owned as family. You're called the sons of God. You reflect your father's character, you're in his image, you're in his business, and you have his loyalty and his protection. How does the world do peacemaking? Whoever has the biggest gun wins. Mm-hmm. Cheap peace. This is how a lot of women do it. Uh, we're just, just going to call peace. We're calling a truce, but we're really not at peace because now we're not talking, but we're not fighting in front of people. So that's what we call peace. That's the way the world offers. And you're not called sons of God. Lastly, persecuted for righteousness' sake. This is not persecuted cause you did something bad. <laughs> this is persecuted because you follow Jesus. God, God, um, God says to expect this. So this also is part of living in the kingdom. And again, how do I flourish? when my kids aren't invited to a birthday party because they can't go and watch that movie? How can I be blessed when that happens to my kids? How can I be blessed when I'm being left out? Because I won't, I won't, I kind of said something about us leaving our friend out, and everybody got mad at me. <coughs> How come I'm not invited anymore? Because they just, I make them, I, you know, I don't, I don't cuss and they cuss and they feel bad around me I mean these are little bitty 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 persecutions okay but I'm trying to just put a, a something practical in your mind of yes that hurts and God's people wear like the red badge of courage I have a badge that says I'm part of this family because I've been persecuted and that's why the disciples rejoiced in Acts five forty one. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor. Why? For the name. This is, this is part, and you're back to the promise of you belong in God's kingdom. And persecution is a sign that you have God's approval. That you have God's, you're going to be fulfilled as a woman. And that you're going to flourish forever. That is upside down, I know. But that's what God says. The world, false prophets, were so well-liked. They were so popular. They were on the cover of, you know, Top 100 People, People Magazine. They were, you know, maybe not the sexiest man alive, but, you know, the one that was in the room where it happened, okay? They kept their jobs and they kept their necks. The people who were really, really flourishing and wanting to bring peace and telling the truth and that we're meek, we're run over and run out of town. The world rejoices when? When they're safe, when they're comfortable, when everybody likes them, when they're left alone, when their children are safe and their jobs are safe, and when their status quo is not threatened. That is when the world rejoices. God's citizens rejoice that they belong to the kingdom. And the telltale sign. Is that they pay for it there's a cost to it there's a sorrow that is what Jesus invites us in this semester this is why I was scared to teach it this is hard stuff I can't do it but in that place of I cannot do it you are at the first beatitude poor in spirit and you're back with the same promise. Yours is the kingdom of God. All these promises are true for you. I'm gonna comfort you. I'm gonna give you the earth. I'm gonna call you my family. You are my children. This is gonna work out. This is gonna be okay. In the temporary, on the way there, it is gonna be hard. But the payout, y'all, empty to rich? empty to rich, who does not take that tray? God gives it to us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you tell us this is the way to follow you and that, that we, when we are yours, this is what our lives will look like. We confess that we are scared. We're scared, but at the same time, we want those promises of being comforted, of being safe, of being rich, of being flourishing forever we want that but we are weak we are needy we are we are not that brave we are little children and then we remember that Jesus says come to me come to me because I am strong and I will comfort you and I have given you the righteousness you need I give you all you need to be righteous So, Lord, you need to to show up for us. I pray your Holy Spirit would enlarge our hearts, that we would run the way of these beatitudes. But, Jesus, we want you by our side. Please comfort us as only you can. Give us a desire to crave this righteousness, this appetite. Give us a picture of what is to come so that all the here and now fades Give us that reality as we face what we face this afternoon in our homes, in our offices, in our school classrooms. In Jesus, your name we pray. Amen.